I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Pack Radio. Get excited, y'all. Welcome back, everyone, to 12 Pack Radio, your podcast source for Pac 12 football news, Pac 12 basketball news, and Pac 12 gambling advice, and the home of the Beta Rank College Football Advanced Statistical Model. Thank you for joining us. We have an awesome show for you today. We have our guest, Hithliday, going to break down Oregon football. I'm joined, as always, by Sports Illustrated Gambling and Sports Illustrated's Max Meyer. What's going on, Max? Uh, not much. I uh, did pretty well betting on Pac 12 basketball this weekend. You just got to keep betting those Pac 12 home teams. It's insane. Washington let me down, though, because that would have been a clean sweep otherwise. But I got lucky with USC, so it it evened out. Yeah, that's true. uh, Oregon definitely had to step on the gas at the end of that game. I watched that whole game. Uh, But you're absolutely right when it comes to the the underdogs and at home. Um, They just have been taking care of business. And we were on opposite sides because I just don't believe in this ASU team. And they were able to take care of business against uh, uh, who did they play this week? Was it Oregon State? But, well, no, ASU, they uh, crushed Utah on Saturday, but they lost to Colorado on Thursday. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, and we'll make sure to continue to cover Pac-12 basketball on the podcast, but we also want to make sure to bring in uh, football news as it happens. And my goodness, there was a lot of stuff to talk about, including the hiring of Nick Rolovich at Washington State, Rob. And of course, it happened the day after we recorded last week. So uh, hey, surprise. We, up. we did. Yeah. yeah, we were on top of that. What did you think about the hire? I, I like the hire. I think Rolovich, you, you need a wrinkle. In Pullman, um, Rolovich uh, switched back to the run and shoot, which is the offense he ran as a quarterback at Hawaii um, in college, uh, like two years ago at Hawaii. And it's made a huge difference uh, for that team um, as a couple of Pac-12 defenses found out this season. Um, What what I also like is he hired a defensive coordinator today. Uh, he hired Wyoming's defensive coordinator, uh, which I think is a, a, also a pretty good hire. So, that, I mean, that was my big question. If you're hiring Rolovich, like who's the defensive coordinator? Um, Wyoming had the number 25 defense in beta rank this season. Yeah, I mean, Rolovich seems like a guy that, uh, you know, can really make it happen in Pullman. I think it's he might have a he might have a tougher season breaking in the offense this season. Um, I think Wazoo loses uh, some key wide receivers along with, you know, Gordon and some offensive linemen. But, um, yeah, there's there's a lot to like with the hire. I was taking a look at the numbers, and I'm going to post an article up on sharpcollegefootball.com where we basically break down all of Rolovich's 
past history and there's about 10 years worth of advanced statistics on him because he was uh, had an initial stint at Hawaii as their offensive coordinator in 2000-2011 and then he rolled over to Nevada and called their place for about three years before taking the head coach job um, and it's it's interesting because the numbers are mixed and, and I want to talk about how adaptive he's been uh, in regards to that I mean I think the first thing you have to mention is that he was at a distinct disadvantage at two power five schools or I'm sorry two group of five schools where the talent wasn't quite there he had a recruit it was difficult to get players in um but even then it was a lot of sub 70 offenses that were sandwiched by three top 25 offenses so it's like you know low lows and high highs um but i think one of the things that the stats don't bear out max is the fact that he was able to integrate three different offensive systems i mean he was an offensive coordinator under norm chow where he had just that really distinct open offensive system he ran the pistol at nevada and then he rolled over to hawaii again as the head coach and like rob mentioned ended up rocking the run and shoot i know i thought that was pretty interesting it showed that he was at least willing to move to the talent that was on the field yeah and a couple years ago uh hawaii went three and nine in the regular season and just seemed that rolovich his back was against the wall and he knew that something had to be fixed and then last year, he like really started switching up the offense, and it worked. Hawaii was back bowling, and, and this year, uh, they win their division in the Mountain West. So, I think, and what Rob brought up when we were talking about this earlier, I think is a great point that some coaches aren't willing to show flexibility with their schemes, but the fact that Rolovich was able to do that and thrive, and you know, not just stick to his principles, but College football, it really, the game is changing. And you, you see all these different offensive schemes and wrinkles thrown out every single week, pretty much. And you definitely have to be willing to adapt in, in, in today's game. And the fact that Rolovich has shown that he's been able to do that and do that on a positive level is a big plus uh, for Pullman. When I was looking at the press coverage uh, for Rolovich, I mean, everything that Washington State did, it looks like they knocked it out of the park in terms of winning the press conference. They got this hire done in like a week and a half or two weeks. I mean, it was really, really quick to get him on board. Um, he goes to some random bar in Pullman. It might be the bar in Pullman. I don't know. But he went to a bar and basically made a surprise visit and covered the bar tab for everybody, which is always a good thing to get on the local side. Um, he, had, he had a pretty good press conference, and um, I think every Everybody appreciates the fact that he can come in with a wrinkle, like you mentioned, Rob. The one thing that I'm just looking, I want to, I don't want to be a naysayer because I do think that it was a good fit for what they're doing. He has access to the Polynesian pipeline. Like, I just think there's a lot of good things going there. He has the experience, but I, I really did think that the offensive numbers were going to be better um, when I started looking at them. And I was just kept looking, going like, oh, wow, most of these, most of these offenses weren't rocking it and knocking down the park or punching above their weight. They were basically roundabouts are a little bit lower where those group of five teams are. So um, I guess all that to say that this on paper, it looks, looks pretty good, but I still would like to see a little bit more. I, like you mentioned, Rob, I loved the, uh, the defensive coordinator hire from Wyoming because holy goodness, when you take a look at all of the defenses that he had at Hawaii, um, according to beta rank 2019, their defense was 108th in the country. Uh, it was 2018. They were 116th, 2017, 127th. Like there was only three yeah, teams worse than Hawaii under Nick Rolovich that year. Um, and then he was 123rd the year before. So all sub 100 uh, defenses. So really is going to need to take care of business on that front. But Max, what did you think about the defensive hire coming out of Wyoming? Because that's a name that Rob has been mentioning, not only on this podcast, but on Wildcat Radio when they were looking for somebody to replace Marcel Yates. 
Yeah, um, I think Wyoming as a whole this year, like I thought they were pretty fortunate uh, to finish with the eight and five record that they did just because their offense, especially their, their passing attack was kind of a train wreck, but their, their yeah. defense, their defense was legit. And so I think the fact that you're getting the defensive coordinator and that they're bringing a couple other members from that defensive staff to help, I, I think that that should help smooth things over as well. Uh, so I, I like the hire. I mean, you're not, you're obviously not going to usually get a high upside hire in Pullman like with like the bigger names, but I think grabbing a group of five coordinator with success, uh, I, I think that it's something that could work out uh, for Washington state. And I, I mean, I, I trust beta rank obviously uh, and, and Rob's numbers and the numbers for Wyoming's defense were good. So, yeah. And I want to get more into, we're going to talk Joe Moorhead when we get Hithliday on, to, and we're just going to take a real, real deep dive. We're going to get into the weeds if you're an Oregon fan. So, And if you like that, make sure to share it. By the way, I didn't introduce Rob. So Rob is the president and CEO guru wizard of the Beta Rank College Football Statistical Model, which we'll be citing on this podcast. And I'm really excited to have Hithliday on because we're going to get into some of the advanced metrics, and he's very aware of um, where not only Oregon is with S&P Plus, but also Beta Rank and does a ton of film review. So definitely keep a lookout for that. But one thing I want to do mention, and, and I'm really excited that we got sponsored, and I have a script here. I'm going to kind of talk about it, but uh, we got sponsored by The Athletic, and uh, this is a publication that we are, are just very, very big fans of. Um, Rob, I, I want to throw it to you for in a moment just to talk about some of the articles that you've written, but in-depth coverage from local writers on every team, plus national writers that you already know, like Jay Glazer, Mike Sando, uh, Mike Lombardi is one of their writers. They're really setting, setting a standard uh, in sports news. No ads, no pop-ups, no clickbait. Uh, just just some really good people and I love their college football coverage if, you, if you're not subscribing to them and reading them you should, they have Stu Mandel Bruce Feldman, Nicole Auerbach some really really good people, they even have Faux Polini. I didn't realize that they brought him on which is one of the best Twitter accounts that I've seen but if you haven't subscribed to The Athletic you absolutely should um, it's one of the things that I think is really a must read if you are a true college football fan um, one of the things that you need to do is go to theathletic.com backslash overtime that's the athletic.com slash overtime. Get 40% off your yearly subscription. Athletic.com slash over, overtime. And Rob, I know that you're a subscriber. You've brought a lot of articles to my attention from the athletic. What are some things that you really appreciated uh, throughout the 2019 season from them? I mean, I would, I am a huge Bruce Feldman fan. <laughs> so, I mean, going back years, I, I just think he does such a good job uh, covering college football. Um, and he does, he, he, I mean, he's, Nine times out of ten, if someone's breaking news on some hire going on, um, it's Feldman. You know, someone has tipped him off on it. So I think he just does a terrific job, and I would I would recommend you know Feldman um, to anyone if you haven't read him. But I would also say like one of the things that I, I I like that the Athletic has done is that they have for almost everyone that's a Power Five school, um, they've assigned a beat writer. Um, that covers that. I mean, for better or worse, some of them are better than others, but most of the ones around, I would say for sure, most of the ones that uh, I follow around the PAC 12 do a great job. Um, they've ingratiated themselves with their local communities. And they're very often folks that, you know, uh, they picked up from local newspapers who maybe had been a beat writer before. So um, I, I think, I think they do a good job with that. Um, and I, yeah, I, it's, it's not, it's not a terribly expensive subscription per month, I would say, too, as I recollect. I think I'm paying like five bucks a month. 
Yeah, plus the forty percent off. Like it's it's a good deal. Definitely go there. Um, athletic.com backslash overtime. And with that, let's get into bringing on Hithliday and taking a deep dive into Oregon. All right, we are back. And very excited to have Hithliday from Addicted to Quack. Must read. We were just talking about the athletic, by the way, Hithliday, and just about must read stuff. And I would add your work in there. I think that your film breakdown is excellent. And if you haven't checked out Hithliday, especially if you're an Oregon fan, because usually you're doing Oregon stuff, one of the things that I appreciate as just a Pac 12 fan, um, the film reviews that you do on some of the other Pac 12 offenses and defenses. If you haven't gone on, it's addicted to quack.com. And he even does these videos where you can watch the play and like quarter speed, half speed, and full speed. So there's like a full breakdown of the offensive line play and what the, you know, like, oh, there's a pulling guard here and check out how the, the tight end missed his block. It's excellent. So very, very excited to have you on because I know you know this Oregon program in and out. It was a heck of a year. So what's going on, Hithley? How are you? Uh, I'm good. Thanks for the kind words. Um, yeah, I, 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 frankly, to be honest, I, I enjoy writing about uh, opponents more than I write about enjoy writing about Oregon because of the emotional connection and it's such a roller coaster. I mean, even in a pretty good year like this one, it's uh, you know they got me sweating every week, so it, it's a lot more uh, relaxed to to break down Pac-12 teams. Hey. Before we get into Oregon, we were just talking before the break about Nick Rolovich and the hire over there at Washington State. Um, I know that you deal with Washington State a lot, obviously, in the Pac-12 North. What do you think about the hire? Uh, I think it's a pretty good one. Uh, you know, obviously, the the run and shoot is not the same thing as the air raid. Uh, you know, there's some high level conceptual similarities, but you know, I, I suspect we'll see a lot of commentators just talking about them as though there's, you know, oh, we'll just plug plug the same players in and the same route trees. And it's like, ah, it doesn't really work that way. Um, uh, and in fact, I don't even know if Rolovich is bringing the run and shoe. You know, I'm not sure we've had a, a press conference about what his offense wants to be, but in terms of like, you know, what he's done with Hawaii, I mean, they're scoring more points since June Jones and, and it's probably, you know, that's a good legacy. You guys just had an awesome hire, at least I think, and I'm curious to see what you think, and I'm curious to have uh, this conversation between you, Max, and Rob. Joe Moorhead, the offensive coordinator, I think for most people was the number one name, at least in terms of the big splashy name on the list. Oregon goes out and ends up hiring him. What do you think about that one? Uh, well, as of we're recording this right now, I don't believe it's official yet, although a little bird tells me it's, you know, the announcement's going to be tomorrow simply because today is a federal holiday. Um, the, uh, yeah, I, I think he was the number one guy in the market. Uh, I I am going to be publishing an article at the end of the month, um, which uh, breaks down film from, uh, gosh, I got uh, seven different years going back to when he was coaching at Akron. Um, he's a, uh, he's a real interesting cat. Um, the, uh, his basic principles is, uh, uh, are about attacking graphs, numbers, and angles. Um, he's definitely about attacking uh, space instead of necessarily personnel. Um, I'm about halfway through the project right now. I'm in the middle of the Penn State tape right now. The two things that have been really interesting are that, number one, each year he picks a relatively small number of formations to run his offense out of. Um, and then they're, you know, they're versatile formations. You can run a bunch of different things, you know, from them. But what's interesting is that from year to year, he'll pick a different set of formations. Like there's, there's, like I was talking about with Rolovich, there's some very high level conceptual similarities from year to year, but it's like he reinvents himself each year um, in terms of adaptation to personnel. And what I'm noticing when I'm watching Penn State right now is that, for example, you know, their their offensive line is terrible. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of creative stuff that he's doing to 
get around the fact that his offensive line <laughs> can't block up the middle to save their lives. Uh, and, and, you know, and then I was watching earlier on his Fordham tape where his offensive line compared to, uh, you know, the teams he was playing uh, was a lot stronger. And, you know, sure enough, he's got a bunch of two back sets and, and runs up the middle a lot more like, yeah, a lot of adaptation, uh, creativity. Uh, uh, it's been a fun project so far. Hey, Rob, I'm going to throw this to you because I'd like to see what Baderank says about Moorhead's offenses. And then, Max, you can jump in afterwards. And I'm going to take a step back because I think you guys have questions for Hithliday, and I'll kind of jump in as needed. But I, I just really would like uh, to have a, an open conversation, and I think you guys have some really good questions. So, um, Rob, what do we got with Moorhead, and what does Baderank say about his offenses? Well, what what's interesting about Moorhead and something that I – you know, like and, and and look for in an offensive coordinator uh, that can adapt to his personnel and and that has a good chance to have a good start in year one um, is that Moorhead is, has been flexible over his career. He's not a, a pass or a run dominant guy. Um, his Mississippi State teams, um, which performed reasonably well, I, I think it overshadowed because it's you know it's tough to score points sometimes in the SEC. Um, they graded it out at 25 and, and 27 in beta rank, but they were run heavy um, compared to his Penn State teams. His Penn State teams were, were, were more pass heavy and more efficient throwing the football. Um, and they were excellent. Those Penn State offenses um, graded out at number uh, nine and number three in beta rank in, in 2016 and 17. And, you know, the fact that he was doing it behind uh, kind of a leaky offensive line uh, says a lot about what he was able to, to scheme. Um, and I, I personally, I mean, I thought it, you know, if if you looked at it, that uh, Oregon and Washington, whoever made the better, whoever made the better offensive coordinator hire, was probably the favorite coming into next year. <laughs> it's a little bit of an offensive coordinator derby, um, given how much both teams lose on offense. Um, and I, I really thought Oregon uh, hit it out of the park with landing Moorhead. Uh, yeah, I, I gotta say there's a part of me that was uh, pretty appreciative of the symmetry of, of Washington hiring the guy who messed up Penn State's <laughs> yeah. offense and Oregon hiring the guy who cleaned up the mess. I, you know, honestly, I was I was prepared for a couple other, you know, I was prepared for the other two candidates uh, were Will Hall from Tulane and uh, Jed Fish, who's been bumping around for a while, although his yeah. last year at UCLA actually did a pretty damn good job. Um, and so I had some film on them, did some preliminary work, and I was, you know, pretty prepared for will hall there's the you know water under the bridge now but just as a little preview and you know maybe will hall will come around uh, again for a power five job i think that's probably in the offing so you know tuck this away in your rolodex uh there's probably more one-to-one continuity between the kind of offense that will hall was running in uh tulane in 2019 the kind of offense that oregon was running in 2019 uh moorhead you know i'm as we've been talking about will probably adapt uh pretty extensively to uh, to you know the the Oregon personnel, and listen, the Oregon personnel is going to be fairly different in 2020 than it was in 2019. We talk about that in a little bit, um, uh, but uh, you know, I think that Moorhead is, in some sense, is probably a change of direction, um, not mm-hmm. a huge one. Most of the stuff that I've been seeing is stuff that's in Oregon's playbook, too. Um, he jumped on the RPO train uh, pretty early. He was an early adopter of that, and that's. Um, in terms of Oregon's offense, the, the, you know, under Marcus Royo, who's now moved on to be the head coach at UNLV, um, Oregon's offensive playbook in 2018 versus their playbook in 2019 is basically identical. They add like about 
four or five plays um, in situational context. But, uh, you know, for the most part, it, it's pretty much exactly the play, same playbook, except for one thing, which is that somebody went in over the summer of 2019 and wrote and put in tags on all the running plays, put in an RPO component to everything. And that was really, you know, if anybody's sort of confused about the offensive numbers that Oregon put up, where like, why does Justin Herbert's completion percentage go up? And why is it that in certain games they're really run heavy and other games they're really pass heavy? That's the answer is that there um, it's tons of RPO plays in 2019. And, uh, and, you know, the defense just dictates whether or not you hand the ball off or you pull it out and you throw it in an RPO. Right. And the reason why Herbert's completion percentage goes way up, it's like, Oh, it's a quick slant. Right. You know, of course he's going to make that pass. Um, and so, you know, getting a coordinator who, you know, that was his, you know, when he was at Fordham, he bought into the RPO system like lock, stock and barrel. You see tons of RPO stuff um, and you see continuity with that, you know, to Penn State as well. And so I sort of think like. Moorhead compared to Hall is probably an evolution of the offense and Hall would be sort of just more of the same offense and different people sort of disagree on, on how much they liked Oregon's 2019 offense. I was, uh, I, I appreciate what they were trying to do. Um, uh, but you know, obviously a lot of duck fans, you know, wanted something, uh, a little flashier and I think they'll probably get it with Moorhead. Uh, obviously quarterback is integral to his system. Like I, I think you saw that at his peak with, um, Trace McSorley at Penn State and Nick Fitzgerald in his first year at Mississippi State. And then just having the RPO and, and giving basically the quarterback more options and to, you know, basically make things easier for him against the defense. So I'm a big Moorhead fan, but it's interesting that you were saying that you were more appreciative of the Arroyo offense uh, this season than a lot of other Ducks fans. Um, but I, so I felt that Oregon's offense was at its best when Herbert was able was running and it just seemed that they kind of limited um, that in certain games this year. And then do you think that that's because that they were trying to protect Herbert's health and save him for, um, you know, for these later game performances or, or how do you think about what did you think about the consistency overall with the game plans from Arroyo this season? Uh, I have four things to say about that. Okay. okay. Uh, number one, yes, certainly they were not running him as much because they wanted to preserve his health and it worked, you know, Oregon fans are all sort of deeply scarred about 2017 when, you know, Justin Herbert went down with injury and we all had to suffer through the Braxton Burmeister experience. So, uh, the second thing is, uh, I think you're right that Herbert running the ball opens some stuff up for Oregon. However, I generally think, you know, having done all this film study on Oregon, I, I think that argument is overstated. Um, first of all, he does wind up keeping the ball for, you know, it's not often, but it's often enough that it keeps defenses honest. And it's pretty rare that you get a play where... Uh, I, I could identify that the defense was cheating, that that Herbert should have kept the ball. He didn't. And because he didn't, the defense got an advantage and that killed the play. They happen from time to time, but they're not happening all the time. And usually Oregon figures out that that had happened and they respond by Herbert keeping the ball. And hey, presto, you know, the defense starts getting honest again. So I generally think that that argument is overstated. The third thing is uh, I've done about 40 games worth of film study on Justin Herbert. I'm ready to stop doing film study on Justin Herbert. He is a tremendously frustrating quarterback. Um, and the reason for that is like, 
like a quarter of all of his plays are something that he is not supposed to do. And, and I mean that in both senses of the term. I mean that in, in first of all, that he would do something amazing, like transcendent, like biomechanically humans should not be able to do that. Um, and I also mean it in the sense of like, Justin, what are you doing? That would get a middle school quarterback bench. Like, you know, it, it's just extraordinarily frustrating. And, uh, and I think uh, to your point, Max, about, you know, empowering the quarterback, um, I think that Justin Herbert was empowered to do RPO reads. Um, he was actually excellent at RPO reads. I just finished doing a year's worth of film study on Auburn in 2018 and Jared Stidham and Justin Herbert's RPO reads are excellent uh, in comparison to Jared Stidham. He, he did you know, the RPO better than the RPO par excellence quarterback. Um, the At the rest of the stuff, man, oh man, I really feel like the coaches designed a game plan to minimize the damage that boneheaded Herbert could inflict. And that's the reason why I, I, I think that that coaching staff did not get nearly enough credit um, is that you could tell they were minimizing the damage that boneheaded Herbert can do. And they were also constructing an offense that wasn't built around the transcendent stuff that when he did something amazing, that it was uh, a pleasant surprise and nothing more. Um, and that, you know, the and that's the fourth thing that I wanted to say is that when I do the I'm not the only person who does film study of Oregon. In, there are, in fact, several other people who are all better at it than I am. And we're one thing that we all agree on is the bottlenecks, not the play calling the bottlenecks, third down efficiency, where Oregon on third and medium and third and long passes the ball 98 percent of the time. And they execute only about 33 percent of the time. And it's just tremendously frustrating to watch a quarterback that's like that's the right play call. That's a touchdown or that's a first down or that's a big gain. And he just whiffs on it. And so I I think, you know, to sum all that up, uh, what I would expect out of the offense and particularly the quarterback in 2020 is a guy where he just does what he's supposed to do. You know what I mean? Like if the, if the trade-off is he doesn't, if the trade-off is that you give up the transcendent stuff, but you also give up the boneheaded stuff that you take that bargain, um, that, that that would probably be a net improvement at the quarterback position. I think it would fit well in Joe Moorhead offense. If you could trust a quarterback to be, you know, reliable in that way. I, we have to, I have to do a bit of a mea culpa here because you were right about Andy Avalos and I was not, yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, he, he just, he really overperformed my expectations, um, for what I had seen from him coming in and, and this season and Oregon's defense finished out at number four in beta rank. I'm just excellent, excellent defense. And they came on hot at the end, um, and, and really just, uh, slammed the door on Utah pretty hard. Uh, and you could almost say like provided a blueprint for what Texas did to him. Um, as well as then, I mean, they had a, they had a good game against, uh, Wisconsin for the most part in the Rose bowl. But with that, you you sort of look at that, and I think what I'm impressed about with this hire, because I I had my money on Will Hall. I I thought Moorhead is the better hire, um, but I thought Will Hall might fit more with what, as you said, with what um, Cristobal's sort of principles were. Mm -hmm. Um, But in in it i guess i would say in this era of sort of big offense and almost capital letters uh these days you you need to have um the teams that are winning playoff games have exceptional offenses um 
Well, and not just exceptional, explosive. You know, yes. that, that's the thing that sort of, you know, I'm a big fan of efficiency offenses. But, uh, and in fact, it was one of the reasons I've been defending this one, you know, for a long time is like I, I, I dig efficiency offenses. I dig field position battles. I dig, you know, punt and play defense kind of things. And it's kind of old fashioned. But, uh, yeah, I watched the national championship game too, man. Like no one's winning. <laughs> no one's winning a natty unless you're hitting 80 yard passes. Like it's just yeah. the, the age we live in. Well, I mean, when Clemson, the number one defense switches into, you know, a three, one, seven and, and yeah. dares, dares you to run the ball. And LSU still says, Nope, we're throwing it. Yeah, we're going to hit it over these, these guys <laughs> who are all like NFL prospect DBs. Yeah, I know. It's just amazing. I mean, it, it remains to be seen whether or not that's a one-off. You know, I, I'm not sure. You know, I look at the last, like, you know, okay, we've had 20 national championships in the BCS plus uh, CFP era, and, like, 19 of them were won by either, you know, run first or game manager or balanced offenses. I'm not quite ready to say, you know, yeah. that, that Joe Burrow's, you know, the future and that's that, but, like, kind of all signs are pointing that way. Well, I, th- I think when you look back at like the the teams that so like Nick Saban's 2012 team was actually a very good offensive team as well as being a def- defensive team. But some of the teams in the interim were really defense first and, and Saban got away with not having to sort of amp up what he was doing offensively. Uh, and I'm also losing my voice a little bit as we go. But the. Um, those days are gone. Like Nick Saban is fully committed to trying to put the best offense he can out there on the field. And if you want to compete, you're going to have to compete with the Clemson that, you know, even though they weren't in the same neighborhood of LSU, they still have a very good offense grading out in the top five, you know, nationally Oregon with this play, they, they, I, I feel like Oregon set their sights at, we are, we are going to make a hire that gets us to potentially like winning a playoff semifinal when we get I, there. I, I definitely think like, I mean, I 100% agree with you if your point is that Mario Cristobal is not screwing around. And that yeah. he, he, when, he, when he says, David. yeah, and, and when he says we're going to win a national championship, that's not, you know, whatever he coach says. Like, no, he means it. And, and he means he's going to try to do it in 2020. Like, I actually think the 2021 team looks yeah. like a, you know, a, a better prospect at that. But like, no, I, I, I think he's fully, you know, on board for, you know, making hires and trying to make a push to do it now. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I totally agree in that sense. The, the other thing that makes me appreciate, uh, Mario Cristobal is a head coach and sort of, I mean, he's not really calling the plays, right? Like he's sort of providing the philosophy and, and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, you know, the CEO type coach model, which, you know, been fairly successful. It, it's actually been a long time since a, you know, real X's and O's coach actually won the whole thing. Um, what I appreciate is that, you know, I could detect several different ways, like like overall strategic game plans that they use to win games. So I'll give you an example of that. Um in uh, in two and a half games in 2019, Oregon center Jake Hansen was out um, with an injury that they never told us what it was. Uh, it was weird. Um, and, you know, go figure losing your four year starting center, you know, has an effect on your offense, not just like calling out the protections and stuff. But also, like I said, it's a heavy RPO offense. And when Calvin Throckmorton, the right tackle would move over to snap the ball, there were like these weird, slow, bloopy snaps. I don't know if you noticed that when you're watching at all. Um, the the two and a half games were the Stanford game early in the year and then the second half against Arizona State and the week after that against uh, Oregon State. And uh, the reaction to it was pretty interesting um, in. In 
the Arizona State game, it actually pretty much cost them the game was that, you know, those bads, they were they were trying to still do the RPO with those bad snaps and the timing was off. And that's what resulted in, in Justin Herbert having an absolutely dreadful third quarter. And that's what sort of doomed them. And then they sort of figured that out and was like, OK, we're going to stop doing the RPO stuff uh, in the fourth quarter. And that was why they had that big comeback that almost, you know, pulled the game off. And then the Oregon State game was really fascinating. I'm going to write a whole breakdown about the Civil War this offseason because it was totally fascinating. Um, they completely eliminate the RPO they there it's like they're running the 2018 playbook again it was you know it was really fascinating um and on top and the the other game was the Stanford game and what connects both the Stanford game and the Oregon State game is that they were playing a real old school field position battle where they would go conservative on third you know it'd be like third and long and they'd have a you know normally that's a team that would try and you know they'd run out a bunch of intermediate routes maybe a deep route and like go big on third down the way that Andy Ludwig at Utah now does um but instead they were playing like Utah used to do where they'd go conservative on third down you know maybe you'd make a play but if you didn't find whatever we'll punt and play defense and we'll ratchet our field position up and up and up and we'll ratchet Stanford or Oregon State's field position back and back and back and I've actually made some charts about this and they're really they're going to be in my article um where like, yeah, points aren't being scored, but it's like a vice that's squeezing down on them. And then, yeah. and, and, which like I dig watching those kinds of games. They they cause fans to go insane. <laughs> They're like, oh, there's no points being scored. We're losing. And it's like, you know, no man. Like, look at this field position. They're 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 locking them up like a bow constrictor. Um, and then in other games where it's like, oh, this is getting out of hand. We need to score points. Like the Washington Wazoo games where, uh, you know the there are problems we can talk about you know the defensive problems in that game maybe a little bit um but they're like oh we're not getting out of here unless we score points and they go real aggressive um so that's what i dig about mario cristobal and why i think he sort of gets a bad rap as a you know as a dummy coach somehow is like nah i've seen him try to win games in like very different strategic ways uh i don't think he's wedded to a particular you know uh ideology i think he has a preferred way that he wants to win games but if it's not working i've seen him change um and i think you know joe moore had hired to come full circle on this probably pretty good evidence of that yeah, I mean, not to step on your toes, Max, but like the he didn't pull a he didn't pull a Jim Mora where he had to wait and he tried to implement the offense like his personal preferences on offense, and then he finally had to give up and hire Jed Fish to come in and clean it up. Like he he was ahead he's ahead of the problem um, in a lot of ways. I I was impressed that he was able to uh, shift directions and and go maybe away from a guy that isn't going to try to necessarily have to win the line of scrimmage in a dominant way. Uh, yeah, that is, especially with Oregon replacing, it's not just four out of five, it's actually because Oregon's running a six-man rotation on their offensive line with uh, Brady Ayl and Dallas Wormack rotating at right guard when they were both healthy. Um, uh, they're losing five out of the six offensive linemen. Now, I really like the guys who are coming in. I think they're actually going to surprise a lot of people. Um, and it's interesting because in many ways, especially in the first half of 2018, it was a square peg and a round hole where those were Steve Greatwood recruits. You know what I mean? Those were, you know, like 290, 300 pounds, 
uh, zone blockers who were being asked to run a power scheme. And then Panay Sewell and Dallas Wormick get injured in the Washington game midway through 2018. And they actually changed up the offense pretty significantly. They changed up uh, how much zone blocking they're doing, how much outside running, how many screen passes they were throwing. I wrote a whole article about this last summer. Um, and you saw that continue in 2019 where they were like, oh, you know, okay, forget it. We're, we're not going to have the power blocking offense that I really want. You know, we're, we're going to zone block about 90% of the time. We're going to continue with that second half of 2018 playbook, plus the RPO stuff that I mentioned earlier. And so that was really interesting. It's sort of like, you know, Crystal Ball was winning with not his dudes. And the offensive line that's coming in, those are his dudes. Like these human beings are flipping enormous. The smallest one of them is six foot four. The lightest one of them is 330 pounds. Like I thought I would go to my grave uh, and never see dudes of that size in Oregon. And they're not true freshmen either. They're guys who are coming in the 2018 class, which means they've been in, you know, Aaron Feld's weight program for like three years now. And I think they're really going to shock people. Like I'm not sure it'll come together right away. You got to play Ohio state early, but like by mid season, when they're in mid season form, this is going to be the biggest offensive line you've ever seen. And I think there's going to be a severe temptation and it may even be appropriate against a lot of the Pac-12 defensive lines that they're playing to just road grade them, you know, just be like, Joe, you know what? Let's just run right down the throats. You know, I think you're actually probably going to see that in a lot of games, but if they're not able to do that, if they're running into, you know, problems or the line, you know, is taking a while to gel or uh, there's injuries or, you know, some of these defensive lines, of the PAC 12 turn out to be better than I think they are. I doubt that one, Uh, you know, having an offensive coordinator is like, I've got a plan. I know how to deal with that. I was at Penn state for two years. Uh, Yeah. That's, that's a good ACE card to have. All right, Max, I want you to jump in on this, but first I want to, to mention we got another sponsor, and it's really been amazing. Uh, thank you to our listeners for for downloading and sharing the podcast and um, just allowing us to continue going on. And one of the another sponsor that I really like, uh, Simply Safe, Simply Safe Home Security. It's like getting a commercial grade enterprise level security, but for your own home. Think about the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know that the police are going to be on the scene immediately, and that's exactly the kind of security that you get with Simply Safe. There's a break in. Simply Safe uses real video evidence to give the police an eyewitness account of the crime, and that means the police dispatch up to 350% faster than a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you when anybody is approaching your home. It means entry, motion, and glass break sensors, plus Simply Safe protection protects your home from fire, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set up your system yourself with no tools needed or simply uh, simply safe's experts can do it for you. And it's only 50 cents per day with no contracts, which is amazing. The no contracts part is like really important. Uh, go to simplysafe.com slash overtime today to get free shipping on your order plus a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com slash overtime to save on home security today. Simplysafe.com slash overtime. So talking more about uh, next year's offense, obviously when you're going to, when, you know, like publications like SI do our national previews for Oregon skill position players, CJ Verdell is going to be the main focus. But I actually think that Oregon's receiving core is sneaky loaded next year. You have Johnny Johnson, who had a breakout campaign this year. Uh, Micah Pittman, when he was healthy, uh, looked like that he was a really impressive freshman. Jalen Red, a reliable in the slot. And then you have USC transfer Devin Williams, who amazing mix of, of size and, and I, I, I think, uh, potential. So where do you think that this Oregon receiving core 
stands out or stands up to uh, previous uh, ones in recent seasons. And in your film study, at least with Johnson, Red, and Pittman, what are some of the strengths that you've noticed on film that might not be talked about uh, nationally? Oh, I think the national scene has gotten the rep on uh, Johnson, Red, and Pittman pretty well. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of shocking to me that that Johnny Johnson uh, had such a turnaround because in 2018, you know, he was the drop master. I mean, he he dropped half the balls you throw at him, and he he had pretty uh, pretty damn solid hands in 2019. Um, uh, Red's an excellent slot guy. Uh, he's also a pretty ferocious blocker on screen passes, which is a, a delight to see. You know, a guy his size, he he just goes. <laughs> hard at guys and uh mike pittman's great i mean he's uh quick as a hiccup and uh, great hands and and you can tell after he catches a pass that he enjoyed catching the pass like uh just straight up competitor um it, there's also a bunch of other days like oregon in 2019 was a frustrating team in the wide receiver core because uh you know there's so many injuries right you know juan johnson uh the transfer from penn state you know was out for half the year with an injury brendan schooler who was a, a pretty good utility receiver for oregon you know was out for most of the year and now he's transferred out uh jalen red sat out the rose bowl for reasons that we don't you know understand and he was oregon's number one receiver uh after uh the tight end jacob breland got injured who was you know oregon's other number one receiver so you know another reason why i thought this coaching staff was better than people gave it credit for was like you know there was no one left who was catching balls <laughs> uh, uh and they still managed to have a fairly decent passing offense um and there's a bunch of guys coming online too you know spencer webb was a pretty good pass catching tight end um uh, the the guy that I really liked who redshirted this year, I just really liked his uh, high school tape, was uh, J.R. Waters. Um, I think he might uh, make some noise. Uh, Josh Delgado uh, was a four-star. He was also playing in the slot. Uh, he's a pretty good, uh, uh, pretty damn good guy, too. Uh, Brian Addison came in uh year before last and then redshirted. Uh, you know, he was a four-star. I mean, yeah, it's a loaded room. Um, it, you know, a lot of those guys had to take red shirts or uh, had injury-related issues, and you didn't quite see it in 2019 um but it should be a hell of a battle uh to figure out who the starting spots are going to be you know it's kind of crazy to say but of of all of those guys the one who's least talented is probably going to be the number one receiver coming back which is johnny johnson like i think there's a possibility that johnny johnson loses his job that's how good this wide receiver room is so i really agree with you max yeah so one of the you mentioned uh this the the ohio state game <clears throat> max that's that's coming up that that to me is interesting because Oregon's recruited well. I mean, they've they've recruited very well by recent Pac-12 standards, but it feels like a bit of a measuring stick for what Oregon might have to amp up their recruiting game to uh, against this Ohio State team that brings back Justin Fields, um, you know, and you know is is losing a lot of very talented players to the NFL is going to replace them with a lot of very talented players. Has Oregon recruited well enough? Because I actually, <clears throat> I think with their with with what they've got with Avalos and Moorhead, they've got the the X's and O's um, there. And I, I think Cristobal's done a very good job in hiring on on player development uh, beyond just recruiting. Like I think a lot of the guys on staff do a very good job with that. But does Oregon is is this going to be a game where I, I, it gets um, not quite? I, I think Oregon you know, has a higher ceiling than say Notre Dame does these days, but like Notre Dame in the playoff where you looked at them and said, Oh yeah, they're, I mean, they're well coached, but they have, you know, half of the NFL prospects of Clemson or Alabama. <laughs> yeah. And, and no, and just something like I would add on to that, 
So I think we, we all agreed on the podcast that with the season opener that Oregon looked like the better team than Auburn. But I just think that Ohio State is, is, a, is a different beast, like just jumping from that oh, to that Ohio State, Alabama tier. So, no, I'm really looking forward to that game. But I'm also I'm really intrigued about the uh, North Dakota State game to start yeah. it off because this past season was the uh, rebuilding year with new head coach replacing Chris Kleiman. Uh, they had a, a, I don't know if it was a freshman or a first year starter at quarterback and, and, and North, North Dakota, I mean, they still rolled past everyone and, and won another, uh, FCS title game. And so I don't want to say that it's a trap game just because it's the season opener and obviously Oregon's going to be amped, but, uh, and I, I just think that North Dakota state's a really dangerous team and, and Oregon definitely has the talent, but I'm still a little worried that North Dakota State can pull off some shenanigans. Not an upset, but um, or maybe an upset, but like a, definitely a close game. Because I'd imagine that the Vegas spread will have this inside two touchdowns. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I, I've got a bunch of tape on on North Dakota State. I'll be writing an article about them. You know, obviously, it sort of hit the back burner. Um, but the offseason is long, and I got plenty of time uh, to dive into them. I did, you know, just while I was making my cut-ups to get ready for it, I watched a lot of, uh, it was a freshman, Trey Lance, uh, their quarterback. And, yeah, he, he's an excellent quarterback. Uh, and uh, the new coach, Matt Entz, you know, did a hell of a job. Um uh, yeah, I mean, it, it should be an excellent test. Uh, you know, I, I hope that uh, various ranking and advanced statistical algorithms take into account that that's not just another FCS team. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I toss all <laughs> FCS data like it's it's not a it's in no way a sensible <laughs> comparison. And from a mathematics perspective, it just makes your like it's. Oh, yeah, it, it's, it's at a, a, it's a full a level of complexity unnecessary clustering of data to your models. So, um, I mean, this is like particularly like whether you play someone really good or you were like Washington State under Mike Leach where you would occasionally lose to an FCS team. Uh, it all comes out in the wash in my model. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, Sagarin, uh, which as far as I'm aware is the only computer system which ranks all... Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, 200, whatever it is, you know, 256, I think, is the number. Uh, uh, Division one team, so FBS plus FCS, you know, usually puts North Dakota state in like the thirties. So like, you know, it, it, North Dakota state will probably be a better team than most of Oregon's power five or most of Oregon's uh pac 12 competition. Um, especially in the South. Rough year for the conference next year. Uh, yeah. You know what I think is interesting is Oregon's um, the home road schedule for Oregon in 2020 is fascinating to me because uh, all five. And if you want to throw in North Dakota state in there uh, as well, uh, all, the six most talented teams that Oregon is going to play are all in Autzen, right? So uh, Ohio state, definitely uh, USC, Washington, uh, Stanford, which is, you know, who knows what's going on with Stanford, but they recruit, you know, they, they have a ton of talent and then ASU who like stole all of Clay Helton's wide receivers. Um, and then North Dakota State, too, you want to throw those in. You know, it, it's like a perfect record. And yet all of Oregon's uh, away games are just nightmare landmines. It's, you know, playing Arizona and Tucson, which, you know, God help us all. Uh, and uh, Cal and Berkeley, which like that might legitimately be a good team next year. And, you know, Wazoo and Pullman, you know, they'll have Rolovich. And, it, you know, Oregon's the only game that those guys ever get up for. So, you know, that'll be fun. And then, you know, I really like what... Uh, 
what Mel Tucker in Colorado and, and Jonathan Smith and in, in uh, Oregon state are doing, you know, those will be tough. You know, all, all five of those are landmines, man. It, the, the home road is really going to be fascinating for Oregon. Um, but yeah, I know it, it all starts with Ohio state. I, I think to your uh, question, Rob, I, I think it's, a, you're, you're absolutely right that it's a measuring stick type of game because, you know, Oregon has been recruiting at this level for, two, three years, you know, the, in 2019, they were mostly doing it with Mark Helfrich recruits with, you know, some of the guys playing as true freshmen. And, yeah. you know, you're still, even with Ohio state's losses, that's a team that's been recruiting like Ohio state since, you know, the, the 19th century, uh, you know, Oregon's just getting started, you know, and that sort of question. And so, you know, it probably is going to come down to, you know, let's see how good the coaches are. Let's see, you know, if they made some smart moves. Let's see if they can pull off some weird stuff, you know, maybe turnovers or some weird special teams nonsense, maybe some Autzen magic. Uh, Autzen does deliver on that every once in a while. So, you know, I've, I would fully expect Ohio State to be favored in that game. I'd probably put money on Ohio State in that game if I were a betting person. But, like, in terms of a measuring stick, of like how far away Oregon is from being a, an honest-to-God natty contender, like, yeah. Uh, that'll be that'll be worth watching. Yeah, I mean, like they were they replaced so much. I don't want to, to like Oregon. For me, it is does Oregon have the horses to compete at say the skill position talent? You know, the, the, those type of questions because you're breaking in an almost entirely new offensive line. You have a new quarterback. You've got a new scheme. I mean, Ohio State absolutely is going to be the favorite in this game, um, but it's. I like I, I will probably spend more time looking at some of the individual matchups um, as the takeaway from this game, you know, two for because I, I think you're right. I think Oregon, it's not this coming year. I, I think the year after really projects for them. Uh, yeah. And I mean, like the other thing is that it's an out of conference game, right? You know, yeah. they, they lose that game. They they win the next 11 and or the next 10 uh they're they're situated pretty well and you know it, as long as they keep it close against ohio state the committee sh- ha- has shown that like you know a a one loss conference champion you know with a with a close loss to a good team has not you know crippled itself in terms of getting into the playoff and they may be yeah. uh, they may be by the end of the season you know maybe those offensive line you know if they are having issues at the beginning of the year maybe they're ironed out by the end of the year and the second bite at the apple uh is tastier who knows well, hey, I want to jump in here real fast, Hifflede, because we were looking at the depth chart of Oregon. And I agree with you on the offensive line. I've been watching Oregon's recruiting on that front. And it, to your point, looks like Cristobal's bringing in the bigger, larger guys that can, like you mentioned, road grade and has, has recruited at a really high level on that front. The defensive side, you don't lose a lot. I mean, a lot in the linebacking core. But I think, again, if you take a look at the depth that Oregon has been recruiting, it's at a very high level on that front. And certainly there might be some drop off. I mean, obviously, Troy Dye leaving is a big deal. <laughs> like, don't want to understate that. But I do think that, like, Mace Funa was really fun to watch this year, and uh, he was a true freshman. And um, I think, the, obviously, of Samson New and some other people that are coming in. My big question, of course, is the quarterback, So, um, which we haven't really talked about outside of Justin Herbert. He's gone, and I'm sure um, you'll have more hair <laughs> to, to tear out uh, next year with uh, breaking in another uh, quarterback. But who who do you think has the the first step there in terms of being able to step in and, and lead this offense, because that's one area that I'm really not familiar with at all when it comes to Oregon's recruiting and who they brought in. 
there's four guys in the room. Uh, the oldest one in that he will be a redshirt sophomore and is the guy who has game experience in some garbage time games in 2019 is uh, Tyler Shuck. Uh, it's not spelled like Shuck, uh, confuses people, but that's how it's pronounced. Um, and, uh, he looks great. You know, I was saying earlier that if, you know, if the bargain is that you give up the transcendent stuff, but you, uh, also don't get the boneheaded stuff from Justin Herbert and you just get a guy who does what he's supposed to do by all indications, that's how just, or excuse me, how Tyler Shuck plays his game. And, and if that's the case, you know, I realize how ridiculous this is what I'm about to say is going to sound and, and please try to stifle your laughter. Um, but like, uh, I I feel like a dude, if he is that, if he is just the dude who, who does what he's supposed to do, uh, that you can lose an NFL first-round quarterback and improve at the quarterback position. Like, I, I know that sounds crazy, but, like, we've all watched Justin Herbert, right? Like, uh <laughs> Uh, so I would say that Tyler Shuck has the inside track. They've been uh, eyeballing a couple of graduate transfer quarterbacks. You know, they're eyeballing Jordan Love before he decided to go to the NFL. They were eyeballing Jamie Newman before he decided to go to uh, Georgia. Um, they might pick up KJ Costello from Stanford. It would be really interesting. Um uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, it's an, it, you know, this is the mar- this is what college football is. You know, I, I remember a couple of years ago when everybody was making fun of Oregon for playing two, you know, FCS transfers, you know, back to back, and and yet here we are, where like three out of the four playoff teams were playing transfer quarterbacks, and it's just like, yeah, it's it's an open market on, on quarterbacks. I, I'm not sure if they do wind up taking a a graduate transfer quarterback. First of all, I don't know if they're going to do it or not, and second of all, if they do, I'm not sure it means that they're lacking confidence in Tyler Shuck so much as he's the oldest one in the room and he's a redshirt sophomore because the other three are uh, Kale Millen, who would be a redshirt freshman in 2020, but he got injured. Uh, he had a sh- his throwing shoulder got injured uh, early in 2019. And so basically like he wasn't able to really practice. So, you know, he didn't get much out of his, his redshirt uh, year, unfortunately. Um, and then the two that they brought in in this class are um uh, Butterfield, I'm forgetting his first name, who's more of a pocket passer, and Robbie Ashford, who's more of a versatile athlete. Actually, Ashford played in the Polynesian Bowl. Did you guys watch that on Saturday? I didn't. Did not. Uh, I thought that Ashford, you know, obviously I'm probably a little bit biased here. I thought Ashford uh, outplayed uh, DJ Ungiungalele. Um, he had a he had a beautiful touchdown pass that got called back um, because of a holding uh, penalty. But God, I wish that went down on the record because it was. I mean, it was the prettiest pass of the game. Like nothing DJU did uh, you know, compared to the, that pass that that Ashford threw. So I there's. There's four dudes who are very talented uh, in that room. I, I think that, you know, they've got a bevy of options. They're all pretty young. I think they might take grad transfer just, you know, to have an old dude uh, in the room, um, you know, in case of injury or, you know, whatever else. Uh, and uh, and like I said, I, I think from what I know about Mario Cristobal and what I've learned so far about Joe Moorhead, that the thing that they will prioritize first and foremost is reliability and consistency. Um, you know, I just, I, you know, 
before we got on the the tape that I finished watching was the USC Penn State Rose Bowl at the end of the 2016 season, and you know there's going to be a bunch of clips in my article of like Trace McSorley did not have an elite arm. You know he got what he got because of moxie and because of reliability and because he didn't do a whole lot of stupid stuff. Although he did do a couple of stupid things in that game. Uh, and I think that's where the premium is going to lie with those guys, uh, with with this coaching staff is like, we want you to execute this offense. We don't need you to be a hero. We don't want you to do, you know, uh, crazy stuff. And we don't need you to be, you know, elite. And I'm not saying that those guys aren't elite athletes. You know, I haven't really seen much of them. They may be, they may not be. I'm not sure. I just, I, I, I what I'm saying is that I don't think that that, that that is a necessary component and that that may kind of weird Oregon fans out because they went, you know, they had a Marcus Mariota, they had a Justin Herbert, they had a Vernon Adams and all those guys are, you know, whatever else their flaws, the like definitely had elite arms. Uh, and so, you know, I think Oregon fans might be because they're like, what are you talking about? He doesn't necessarily have to have an elite arm. And I'm telling you, Joe Armourhead was very successful with a quarterback who didn't have an elite arm. So the crown jewel of, of the Oregon recruiting class is Justin Flo, the linebacker from California. And I, I just want like, what are your expectations for him year one? I think he's going to play. Um, I think that, you know, as Bryant mentioned, uh, you know, the defense doesn't lose a whole lot, but where it loses is in the linebacking core. Um, it's interesting because while, I, you know, I, I like all of those. I love Troy Dye. I, I really love Lamar Winston. He was actually a fascinating cat because he was like the leader of the defense. And he, you know, there were true freshmen who were playing who were just, you know, there's no way to sugarcoat it. Like, they're just better than him. And he took it like a champ, you know, in stepping back. And you're like, you know, go ahead, guys, you know, take my spot. Um, and, and still found ways to provide leadership. He was great. I love that guy. Um, Bryson Young, uh, the stud backer, uh, you know, he's backed up by Mace Funa, who's better than him. Um, you know, and uh, uh, the and then on top of that, I'm not sure whether or not Gus Cumberlander, who's a defensive end, who's like their pass rush specialist, who's their sort of like the long, lean uh, type of uh, defensive end. He he broke his leg in the Colorado game, which, by the way, in case you were curious about, you know, what was going on, you know, why Oregon wasn't generating much of a pass rush against Washington and Wazoo, like that. There's your ticket right there. Uh, he may apply. He's a redshirt senior, but he may apply for a red, medical red shirt or you know we don't know he might be coming back or not um anyway the upshot of all of that is that you know yeah that they're going to need to 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 step up you know the deal now oregon's recruited very well at linebacker there's a couple guys who you know we haven't seen at all uh gemin effort and trevor my um and, and you know beyond justin flo there's also you know noah sewells the other five-star linebacker that they got they also got an excellent you know linebacker in this class jackson leduc um yeah, the, they're loaded at, at, at linebacker, you know, in terms of young guys. They definitely demonstrated that they're comfortable playing true freshmen. I, I mean, in my Rose Bowl uh, film review article, I, I definitely made sure to include the clip in which, you know, true freshman Kayvon Thibodeau is whipping their left tackle. Uh, true freshman Brandon Dorless is whipping the Remington Trophy winning center. Uh, true freshman Mace Funa is tackling the two-time Doak Walker Award winner. And then off in the corner, true freshman Mikhail Wright is locking down Quintez Cephas, by far their best receiver. It's like, yeah, it, in front of 16 million people, every recruits mom and the almighty Lord, you know, Oregon's playing four true freshmen and, and kicking ass. Like, you know, the, I think they're definitely going to be comfortable with putting Justin Flo in. I don't think that's a question. And they definitely, I mean, when you look at this, the defense looks pretty set next season, both, in, you know, on, on the two deep 
but they're definitely going to want to rotate some guys in, um, you know, because some of those guys are going to graduate off, off the defense on the starters. How do you, I kind of want to, as uh, we wind down a little bit though, like I kind of want to hit you up a little bit for sort of a look around the conference. Cause you, you know, you're one of the, you're one of the folks that really keeps track of what goes on around the conference. You know, like it is going to be an interesting year, Oregon, you know, I would put them a little bit ahead of where Washington is. Washington returned so much off that very good defense last year. But there's a lot of question marks around the conference. You know, like, I, I, how did you feel about the, the Musgrave hire at Cal? I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Uh, well, I'm an Oregon fan. I love Bill Musgrave. Like, <laughs> I, I can't I can't unemotionally answer that question. He's one of my heroes. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I'm not sure if Bill Musk like, yeah, go, go Bears, uh, go Bill Musgrave. Yeah. I, I hope they're great. You know, in 11 out of 12 games this year, um, the the they need to sort out their offense. Like, uh, um, I, I am. You know, everybody watched that bowl game against Illinois and said, oh, boy, Chase Garbers, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the hero of Cal. And it's true. They're undefeated when he when he finishes a game. But like, I don't know. Look at the teams he played like that's sort of a I think a number of people. I believe I'm talking to one of them uh, uh, looked at Justin Herbert after 2017 and said, you know what? Yeah, he was like undefeated in games in which he played. But look at his opponents, you know, like when you have a quarterback injury like that, it, you know, and in which you have a big differential in the quality of teams that he versus the backup played, you can kind of fool yourself a little bit. Um, I'm not buying Cal until. Yeah, I'm not buying Cal until they prove it. Like, you know, they they basically screwed themselves in in 2018 with the constant quarterback rotation and uh, and and on top of that, I thought that like they had a pretty excellent running game and they didn't lean into it when Modster was playing. I, you know, so who knows? That might be stuff that Bill Musgrave fixed, uh, just like he fixed my heart. Um, uh, I, I, the, I, what I think is crazy is that, you know, outside of, you know, potentially Cal and then, yeah, we'll have to see about Washington. You know, they hired a, you know, let's face it, a god of an offensive coordinator and Jimmy Lake's a new head coach. Um, and, and, uh, and he thinks he has the number one recruiting class, but this is incorrect. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll just have to see, like, I wasn't as enamored with their defense as it sounds like you are. Um, however, one of the reasons why I wasn't very enamored with it was that I was seeing tons and tons and tons of freshman mistakes, uh, on film for Washington. Well, they're not going to be freshmen anymore. So yes, it's entirely possible that what Washington fans were predicting for 2019 actually comes true in 2020. And all those four stars actually, you know, make it an elite defense again. Um, they, they they came on at the end in the model, and my model has a time decay weighted in. So much like Oregon's defense, you know, really improved down the stretch. If a lot of what you watched on Washington early, they were they were kind of middling and they were grading out middling. Uh, um, but they 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 were able to turn it on a little bit more late. Of course, they get a a, a great grade, of course, because Washington State had a pretty good offense last year, and they always mm. seem to shut Mike Leach down. 
Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, we're just going to, uh, you know, that's a bunch of question marks, too. Right? I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, they open with Michigan. They don't get the, the FCS warm up. You know, they they oh, get, no. they start out with Michigan. And so, like, that might be a distortive, you know, game for all of our perceptions because of the anchoring effect. Who knows? Um, Stanford uh, and USC are and UCLA are all committed to hoarding talent and then squandering them. Um it's like kind of bizarre that three out of the four California schools have decided to be zombie programs. Um, I don't know. I mean, how many, like, I, I think there might be between US, UCLA and Stanford, I think there might be almost 30 players in the transfer portal. Uh, yeah, I need an answer to that question stat. Like, what is going on with Stanford's transfer portal? Because, like, the best, the most charitable answer that I've gotten from Stanford fans on this question is, oh, no, 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 no. These aren't kids who actually want to leave Stanford because how could you ever want to leave, you know, my all my fair alma mater. Um, but rather, it's because the graduate admissions department has implemented this and that and the other requirement. And they were all told that they need to get into the transfer portal now because if they're not admitted into the graduate school. And these are all going to be fifth years because they redshirt everybody right at Stanford uh, that like, well, you know, they need to be in the portal now in case they need transfer out so it's not so bad and i'm like dude if your graduate admissions department has decided that you don't automatically get your fifth year as a football player then you've decided you're not a power five football program anymore um like that is an extremely bad situation and if that is if that's actually what's going on at stanford like uh, i'm not kidding oregon's gonna be carrying around a third fcs caliber program uh uh in it you know at one of its most prestigious institutions like my stars you know uh, uh, i need someone to tell me what's going on with stanford uh, and give me some straight answers cause... Well, and people forget i mean i i mean uh, so, some some of our listeners may be young enough to not remember that stanford's not usually terribly good <laughs> it's, it's 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 actually hard to win at Stanford, and everybody sort of turns their like Jim Harbaugh and um, uh, David uh, oh, so David Shaw. Like David Shaw. Sorry, don't don't bleep that out. Let me sound dumb. Um, <laughs> but they they really almost did turn Stanford's challenges into positives in almost like a weird interview kind of way. But it's really hard to win there. I mean, there are a lot of good, like Bill Walsh went six and six at Stanford, uh, um, you know, like, and that was his best year. So I, I, I do think that, you know, people forget that it's, it is easy with Stanford and, um, you know, their lines haven't been great in a long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they lost Randy Hart in 2015 and like far be it for me to, to praise somebody who worked for Don James. But I mean, he really was the best defensive line coach that the PAC 12 or PAC 10 has had in a long time. Um, and you know, Kevin Carberry replaced, um, uh, what's, uh, uh, Bloomgren who went off to rice, um, yep. and like, and took over the offensive coordinator responsibilities or, or Bloomgren was, was the offensive coordinator. He took that title with him. They gave it to, to be to Pritchard. Who's like David Shaw's clone somehow. Uh, yeah. we, we had a lot of go, go into the quack 12 podcast archives and find our interviews with Jack Blanchett. Who's the, um, who's the managing editor for rule of tree, which is SB nation Stanford site. Uh, we had a number of great conversations 
conversations with him about how Stanford gets trapped by their talent because they can't process guys out and they can't play in the transfer portal because of their academic requirements. You know, like uh, Jim Harbaugh did a lot to lower their academic, you know, requirements. So that it's yeah, not yeah. so much of a disadvantage. Although if this graduate admissions thing is uh, is real, then they sort of you know backed up into that problem from the other way, right? Like kids yeah. don't get a fifth year. Um, uh, yeah, like you know the 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 they they might be in some serious trouble. Like the, and here's the thing: like there are ways to be successful as a talented team, but your lines are kind of malfunctioning. There are ways to right. do it. David Shaw doesn't know what those ways are, mm-hmm. and David Shaw is the last coach in America to uh, admit that he needs to to pursue those options too. So, yeah, uh, I think you know. I think there might be dark days ahead for Stanford, or at least they're not done with them. And it's still also bizarre to me that Walker Little and Paulson Debo, two guys who you, um, Little for sure, and Debo, I would think so as well. Like they'd be first round picks and they both opted oh, yeah. to stay in school another year. And it's just crazy that they're like on the complete other end of, of the exodus at Stanford. And then one other point for me with Washington. So you guys mentioned the Michigan uh, season opener they might have the toughest road schedule in the conference next year. Oh they, yeah. It totally they, flips last year was, was a cakewalk uh, home schedule. And this year, yeah, take it max. Yeah, no, they have at Oregon, at Utah, at Cal, at USC, at Washington state. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So that's why honestly, that's why I'm, I, I'm like really, really low on Washington for next year. And, and that's why like by, by so, like, uh, that's why I'm I'm high on Cal, and yeah, I I just think I think it's going to be a real and especially if Donovan doesn't pan out like we expect him to, I think it's going to be a really rough year for Washington. Hey, uh, Wilcox is season. running. Wil, Wilcox is going to extend the streak to three. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there there's there are very few people on in the University of Washington who remember beating Cal. So is, is uh, Evan is Evan Weaver allowed to come back and just play in that one game? <laughs> just just so he can just so he can talk trash. Like no one like sneaky, sneaky trash talking Evan Weaver. Like that dude talked a lot of trash. So I was gonna ask, so I would Oregon State made the out of nowhere leap uh this season compared to last season. And out of the Pac twelve teams that had a losing record this season, so that's Oregon State, or I should say a regular season losing record. So Oregon State, Stanford. UCLA, Colorado, Arizona, which of those teams do you think could make the jump or is most likely to make the jump into bowl eligibility next season? Uh, I should have pulled up their schedules because, uh, you, you know, probably these guys are all borderline enough that like home road splits might make the difference. And yeah. so, uh, but I'm, I'll shoot from the hip here. Um, it's either Oregon State or Colorado, and the reason that I say that is I, I like the path that that Oregon State is on. They play in the tougher division. Um, Colorado, uh, Colorado was doing a lot of good things last year, and they were just devastated by injuries. Like, just I mean, it wasn't even funny how many injuries they had, and and I understand why nobody paid attention to it because it's Colorado. Um, but like, they probably had the worst injury situation in the Pac-12, and like I include USC's like graveyard of dudes in that. Um, it's entirely possible that if they get those dudes back, plus the guys that Mel Tucker has been bringing in who like, I, I thought there was no coach who won the off season, the 2019 off season more than Mel Tucker, because I mean, he immediately uh, identified what the problems were with uh, Colorado's roster and immediately set about plugging those holes. Um, I, 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 
I was really impressed with what he did, and I think that's going to pay some dividends in 2020. And uh, I think he's got a softer schedule. Not having, not actually looking at it. I can actually pull it up. I'm sitting. Well, actually, at a well, no, they have they have at Texas A&M for yeah, right. conference, which is rough. Uh, if they then, get Colorado State, who they always beat, Fresno yeah. State, like I, I, I think that Tedford's. Uh, I don't want to speculate about Tedford. I, I love Jeff Tedford. He's like, you know, it's Bill Musgrave and Jeff Tedford. Those are the two guys I love. They're both Oregon. No, Tedford, Tedford's retired. They got uh, Illinois' offensive coordinator, oh, which, is a, which is a good hire. I didn't follow that story. All right, good, good to know. Um, all right, but, let's yeah, the rest yeah, of yeah, but it'll be good. It'll be good to get Fresno earlier in the year, and especially yeah. at home. Who do they miss from the north? They miss. They miss Cal. That's probably good. And they miss uh, Oregon State, which, you know, who knows? So, like, yeah, my two my two probably most improved teams that are not going to see each other unless they meet in the Pac-12 championship in which we'll all have big egg on. <laughs> <this life. laughs> that would be fitting. That would be fitting for the first Pac-12 championship in Vegas. Yeah, but, I mean, the other three that you mentioned were uh, UCLA and Stanford and Arizona, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it ain't going to be them. <laughs> were you kidding? Like, <laughs> oh man, it's just it's tough because I, I mean, Oregon, USC, Cal. I'm I'm like I'm I'm lower on Washington. I feel the most. I'm lower on Arizona State. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm with you on that, and I guess we're talking to two Arizona guys who probably won't pipe up either. And no, so, I am. I've been reminding people like Jaden Daniels wasn't as good as you think. That offense wasn't as good as you think, and that defense we'll see with a new first year play call. I think it's so bizarre that like uh, what the problem was clearly all year long for Arizona State was that both their offensive line and their defensive line were just not Power Five caliber guys. Yeah. And everybody's blaring the trumpets for Herm Everett because he pulls out you know six California wide receivers, uh, and it's like that wasn't the problem, Herm. You know, no, where's no. Your, where's the beef? Yeah, well, it's weird because like he fired everyone on that uh, offensive staff except Dave Christensen, yeah. uh, his O line coach. Yeah, so I mean, just with all the teams that I'm down, I'm just trying to think of one team that. I, I it's USC, it's, Max. I mean, come on. We all know it's going to be USC, and half the conference is going to be delighted because Clay Helton's going to get extended. Uh, uh, but on <laughs> the other USC but I'm a, a good defensive coordinator hire. Yeah, no, but I'm already, is I'm, already banking, I'm already banking USC for eight, eight nine wins. Oh, yeah, I, no. I, I mean, um, that's the thing about, like, you talk to USC people. Like, we've been talking to Alicia D'Artola. I know you guys like talking to her, too. She, like, she's amazing. And, like, you know, uh, I listen to her podcast, you know, when I when I need more energy for for a run or something like that, because like she is like an everlasting battery of rage and shame <laughs> about USC because because Clay Helton is not going to get him a national championship. And that's a program right. that needs to expect national championships every time. But that doesn't mean that he's a god awful coach. He's really not like he's he's a good enough coach to put, you know, put with the talent that he gets to be like eight or nine wins a year. And I know that's not like acceptable to USC fans, but to everybody else, like, yeah, he's going to ruin a couple of PAC 12 team seasons. Um, you know, it's just going to happen. Like, yeah, I'm just actually, I'm looking at Utah's schedule and they, no, they, they lose avoid, everyone. I, they lose, I, I yeah, this no, was their they, shot. They, they lose everyone, but they don't have to face Oregon and they don't have to face Cal. Or no, I'm sorry. They do face Cal. Who's the second one that I'm missing? Stanford. Stanford. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, they have a. 
outside of uh, Holy War to start the year, their non-conference is really soft. They get USC and Salt Lake City, and that that series has been home team has won every single time except for once. You know, so, this yeah. is one where I, I both agree with Rob and I disagree with Rob in, in that uh, I agree with Rob that they lost everybody and that they're probably, you know, going to take a step back in 2020. I disagree with Rob that uh, they were a great team for, you know, nine out of the 13 games that they played. Like I, I really like I did my film study on Utah. I was pretty much the only person in the country who said Oregon's going to beat the pants off of Utah. Um and the reason right. and the reason that I said that was that, you know, uh, I, I want to reduce this down to as small as possible so I don't sound like I'm gloating. But like the the it was very clear that teams were more effective running the ball against them that anybody wanted to admit. And what would happen was that like teams would abandon the run. Something would go wrong. Utah is a very opportunistic team. They would capitalize on the, whatever stupid thing that you did, like UCLA running backwards and fumbling the ball, you know, or, you know, Colorado had them on the ropes for a good, you know, portion of their final game of the year. Uh, and, and, and then you know, it's like Utah's reputation would precede them and teams would just self-destruct themselves. And I think that that phenomenon is not going to obtain in 2020. I think that people will look at Utah and say, this is a beatable team. Let's stick to our guns. You know, let's keep running and attack them where they think they're strongest. That's how Oregon won that games. They attacked them where Utah thought they were strongest. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, uh, I think I think somebody's going to punch Utah in the mouth early, and there's going to be blood in the water. Um, hey, that was not even a totally mixed metaphor. <laughs> I mean, we talked about this, but even before that Pac-12 championship, that Utah in that Washington game in particular, there on both lines, they were getting beat. Oh yeah. Um, now they had they they figured out a way around it. They did not. Right. Anyway, figure anything out. I mean, that <laughs> was the crazy. Oregon. That was the crazy thing. We were talking to um, uh, Kurt Cragthorpe with the uh, Salt Lake Tribune, who's actually Dave Cragthorpe, the Oregon State coach's son. Um, that was a really fascinating conversation. And like, I was sort of dreading the conversation because we had never talked to him before, and I didn't know how like how much it, like how in the bag for Utah he was. Turns out, not in the bag at all. <laughs> that was a real fun conversation. Um, and like, he opened up with like. Yeah, you know, usually teams that make a conference championship game don't have an offensive line that's as bad as Utah's. And I was like, oh, thank God you said that, Kurt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was is really shocking. Now they lose their left tackle, uh, Paolo. Um, they bring back everybody else. Uh, I don't know how much that's worth. They're very excited about a dude named Olaseni, um, who is a Juca who came in. And it's interesting that you mentioned that Washington game, Rob, because they tried the Olaseni experiment at right tackle um, in that game for the first four drives, and they went absolutely nowhere. Like Olaseni was not good at the position. And then they put uh, Maula, you know, back in, even though he was injured. They're like an injured, you know, starter is better than you are. Uh, you know, d d rub some dirt on it buddy and, and go in and and uh yeah so like you know i think utah fans are convinced they're going to get better on the offensive line i'm like mm, oh no I'm, no I'm not sure about that guys <laughs> no and, and the utes i mean i think last year they 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 played like a great team when they were playing lower levels of competition yeah and they got exposed when they they faced guys that were more talented recruits you know um that were also well coached uh, and I, I think that 
Utah's got a little more work to do, but they're also a program. I mean, and this is true, but this is true. I think of a lot of teams in the PAC 12 right now, nobody's in sort of, uh, you know, like reload mode. Like everybody has to kind of build up, you know, to, to whatever their year is going to be. And last year it was Oregon and, and Utah that were returning a ton of production. I don't know. I mean, I'm like, USC is going to probably return the most production in the conference, oddly enough. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, on both sides of the ball. And, um, you know, I mean, yeah, if they make a good DC, DC hire, I could see it. I would say, like, in the South, the only team I'm I'm absolutely 100% sure is probably will not improve is, is UCLA. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. You're, you are not 100% sure that Arizona won't improve? Listen, Marcel Yates is not, not <laughs> on the sidelines anymore. Um, and, and Khalil Iona, Tate isn't slinging the ball around coach, anymore. Who is hands down what it like should have never had a job at even a group of five school is not there anymore. You know, like I think Paul Rhodes and Noel Mazzoni sounds a lot better in 2005 than it does in 2020. But it's it's an improvement. And Canel was was quite good i um, I, I liked ganell actually i would so, you know I, i'm not sure it, it, what i would do if i had to rank my pac-12 uh quarterbacks right now but ganell would be pretty close to the top yeah and, and i look at that and they're returning a lot of experience at receiver um and i i so with arizona i am very caught like i'm very caught like i in the same way that like if you told me like washington state made a decent defensive coordinator hire i'm like hey like it can't get any worse like they were terrible <laughs> i mean it, it's sort of the I, same I think way Dickert is a good defensive coordinator oh i think he is he came too. from wyoming and and yeah. like yeah he put together some good defensive I, I mean he's a guy that i actually wish arizona would have hired not you know <laughs> yeah. i would have taken him ahead of paul rhodes but I mean, like when you look at where I mean, I I, I think there's a shot for Arizona to be better, um, but like it's a, just a mess. I mean, when I look across those teams, they all have big question marks somewhere. Um, the only one that I'm sure of that I that I really don't buy into is I don't buy into an offense quarterback by Dorian Thompson Robinson, and I don't buy into uh, a defense that's coached by uh, as an arrow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm afraid I can't comment too intelligently on UCLA. It was the only Pac-12 team that Oregon didn't play in 2019. They were almost certainly not play them in 2020 as well. And then just the way that my film study worked out was that I, I never, I don't believe I ever watched UCLA play a team that Oregon was about to play. So, I, you know, I haven't done film study on UCLA like in a long time. Um, although their season, you know, didn't surprise me at all. And, and then that little run they had in the middle of the year where the UCLA fans were getting excited again. And then, you know, Utah bad teams. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> speaking of uh, uh, running the door, uh, run the table against bad teams. There's actually a really interesting uh, game on the week four of the Pac-12 2020 schedule. And that is uh, Arizona State at USC, uh, which, you know, let me set the table for this one. Uh, USC is going to be, you know, reeling. They open against Alabama, which ouch. Uh, and then they get New Mexico and then they got to play, you know, that early game against Stanford. It'll be at Stanford, which I'm, you know, I'll call my shot. Now USC will inexplicably lose that game. It, it'll be, you know, USC will be clearly the better team and will somehow lose. Um, and so they'll be one and two going to the game against uh, Arizona State. Arizona State, on the other hand, has three cupcakes, uh, and everybody loves Herm uh, for no reason. And 
and it will be three and zero, and everybody will be billing this as like this game's going to decide the South. You know, Herm's going to do it. He's finally going to take the step forward, and USC's going to kill him. That's my prediction. And uh, Herm's going to finish like seven and six again, and that'll be it. That'll be the high water mark of the twenty twenty Arizona State season. There you go. <laughs> I was about, like, USC's schedule is fat because after the Arizona State game, then they play at Utah and then Cal the next two weeks. Oh yeah, it's, and it's 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 fascinating because if they beat if they and I think that they're going to beat Arizona State too, and then they're going to lose the next game to Utah to fall uh, to one and two Pac twelve, oh. and then the, and then the, and then I think they might like run the gauntlet after that. Oh, and, and it's going to be a Friday night road trip, which USC fans are absolutely convinced they cannot win on Fridays on the road. Uh, you know that's certainly not making excuses at all because USC fans are certainly not you know megalomaniacal sociopaths. That's definitely not true. Um, uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm with you. Like that's you know that's going to be a two week series in which the South is you know is is sort of up for grabs, and I think it's going to have some weird results. Um, or or actually, the results will probably be exactly what we think they're going to be. But then you know people are going to try to read too much into them. Uh, yeah, I mean, USC's, uh, you know, you know, like we've been talking about, they're going to finish like eight and four, nine and nine and three, something like that. They're going to get humiliated in their bowl game. You know, Notre Dame's going to, they're going to start and finish the season with losses. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, and they'll somehow find a way to retain Clay Helton and, and we'll all be, you know, setting off fireworks. The the one thing he'll have three losses win the pack 12. And apparently, because like, because like Ohio State will go to the playoff, and they'll get like the second best team out of the, or like the best team out of the Big Ten West, which may not be good next year. The one thing about the USC fan base is they are, they they are quite. Uh, everything's on fire all the time, but they keep it in house. So like, there's not a lot of bleeding and yelling at us. You know, we'll get you know, Utah fans will yell at us, at us, and ASU fans, and Washington fans, and Oregon fans. But the USC fans, for the most part, that you know, they are in a few, in a yeah. full panic, but they're not they're not taking it out on on people that already right. know what the problem is. Yeah, they they've already got their pariah, so you know they don't need to invent one in in podcasters. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's they have uh, their Babadook and it's Clay Hilton. <laughs> yeah. Why, why can't he be normal? <laughs> let's wrap it up here because we're going about an hour and a half. Um, Hithliday, we're definitely going to have you back on to talk about the Pac-12. We're going to tie a ginormous bow on the conference after we go through some of these teams and do a big breakdown. But uh, Quack 12 podcast, which is excellent. I listen to you and Adam. Um, really like what, like when they have you on and, and you guys roll through things. Um, addicted to Quack, where all your work is. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, follow me on Twitter. I post interesting stats and and uh not a lot of fluff yeah yeah very good very good follow um max what's going on at sports illustrated uh well we'll have super bowl betting coverage uh mostly next week and then college basketball with three-man weave as well that'll be our best bets will be wednesday and thursday and i can already tell you uh i'm i will definitely be making oregon a best bet thursday uh hosting usc just after it just feels right that USC after that miraculous didn't deserve that game win at all against Stanford, that they're going to implode on the road uh, up in Austin or up yeah. in um, Eugene. Yeah. Well, and, speaking and, of teams that didn't deserve the win. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. That's true. with or- But I guess with Oregon, um, I mean, w- at least with what, what I've been watching with the basketball team, they just have a lot of trouble getting the ball inside. 
Yes. And so, but, and I don't think they're going to really dare to do that against USC just because with uh, Okongwu, like they, they have one of the best rim protectors in the Pac 12, but USC can definitely be beat on the perimeter. And, yeah, and that's all Oregon wants to do. Exactly. So I, I think Oregon should steamroll USC in that game. And then, uh, yeah, so Pac 12 or college basketball best bets will be Wednesday and Thursday. And yeah, so just find everything uh, there at SI Gambling. Cool. And Rob, before you uh, talk about sharp college football, um, I will, we're releasing an awesome resource for people on the website, uh, actually two awesome resources, but I'll just record a quick promo of this a little bit later in the week so people can understand what it is. But I think people are going to really like it, especially if you're a gambler, it puts things in perspective and we're tracking a lot of stuff. So, um, outside of that, what's going on, uh, with you and going on with the website? I, uh, I I booked a venue for the the nerd prom, nice. the, uh, the the analytics conference. Uh, so it's going to be in Cincinnati, Ohio, in uh, June thirteenth and fourteenth. Um, and I will have uh, a put out. I will put out a call for presentations or papers uh, to be submitted. And I will also should by the end of the week have figured out how to issue tickets and or take payment. That's awesome. And what was the dates again? Uh, June 13th and 14th. That's, and we're receiving a lot of feedback on the website, which is really cool. Um, so I'm sure that's going to be well attended. So um, looking forward to hearing about that. Um, Hifliday, thanks for joining us. Always super fun to talk with you and to take a deep dive into Oregon, but also the the Pac-12. And our next conversation, again, will be on the entire conference and just uh, going through. Because I think I've been listening to what you've been talking about on Quack 12 Podcast. And I think we're all kind of on the, the same page, which which I think in this case is a good thing. So um, thank you yeah, for your time, my uh that's that's my uh, spring and summer project is doing all the pac 12 previews so i'm just starting to put together my returning production charts uh and i know that you have been too and I, it's been a pleasure uh comparing notes on that sort of stuff and might not even have to shoot from the hip next time yeah yeah it's a, it makes things a lot easier so uh trying to get ahead of that um cool well thanks guys i uh, hope you have a good evening and stay tuned for an announcement on sharp college football a little later this week and we will continue recording weekly our next guest will be utah man podcast talking about the utah program so stay tuned for that.